You know, Aaron, I think the hardest part about doing this podcast is the fact that we have work outside of this podcast. So today. much homework. So much homework. Especially like the week before spring break. <laughs> midterms, right? I was writing a paper, like, late last night. And, you know, you get to the point, you know, the night before paper just do, and you're like, wow, this paper sucks. And you start to look at it, and you're like, I'm going to have to rewrite it all. All right. Um, we should probably get started on this podcast. Yeah, we really should. So, welcome to Fly on the Wall. Our two guests this week are, um, to say, experienced speechwriters just doesn't get you there. That does no justice. Cody Keenan and Mark Thiessen, two gentlemen who have, you know, decades of speechwriting experience. Cody Keenan uh, wrote for President Obama um, starting in 2008, uh, was his chief speechwriter um, in 2013, taking over for John Favreau, and has written some of President Obama's biggest speeches from Selma to his, you know, his farewell address. His final State of the Union. Yeah, a couple of his State of the Unions yeah. he's written. And um, I am sure that over the course of his writing, he has looked over at some of his papers, you know, some of his speeches and said, this is terrible. That's definitely something we're gonna have to ask him. <laughs> yeah, I think we I think we will. The other speechwriter we have on this week is uh, Mr. Mark Thiessen, who uh, wrote for, um, you know, Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld. And then, you know, finally got a job in the White House in 2004 writing for, you know, President Bush. And he was a part of the speechwriting team there. Finally moved up to uh, the chief speechwriter role and uh, had a hand in some of the uh, more memorable um, waning moments of the uh, Bush administration. And I, I think this is a very topical conversation to be having, you know, speechwriting, especially given the week that we just had. You know, this week we had President Trump address a joint session of Congress we had the news break that President Trump will not be attending the White House Correspondents' Dinner, uh, which is a very traditionally a speechwriting-heavy event. You know, a lot of preparation goes into that. Uh, so I think this is a great opportunity to get their thoughts on, you know, the relevance of uh, practical speechwriting uh, in the modern presidency. Yeah, no, definitely. Especially with President Trump. You know, President Trump spends, you know, either the first half or the last half of his um, time talking ad-libbing. Um, he very rarely sticks to the script for at least half of his speech. Um, and, you know, looking at the White House, or er, not the White House Correspondents' Dinner, his joint session speech, he was very much on script right. throughout the entirety of it. And I think the, the broad consensus coming out of that speech was that analytically it came across as very presidential. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it very much showed a, a person in a position of leadership. So I, I think it's very interesting trying to strike that balance between style yeah. Uh, which you know, President Trump obviously has his own, uh, and and asking the question of you know do speechwriters try to mimic that or do they sort of try to mold it themselves when they're going through the the clay that is a, a new speech they're trying to flesh out. It is very difficult to write speeches for the most powerful people in the world mm -hmm. because you have to get a level of access to them. You have to get a level of you know understanding of who they are as people, but these. You know, these presidents don't have, you know, hours to spend with their speechwriters. They have minutes. No, I couldn't agree more. And I think one of the more, I don't want to say tragic, um, but one of the more catch-22 uh, aspects of being a speechwriter, uh, especially for someone as high profile as the president of the United States, is that, you know, as soon as you put those words to paper, they're no longer yours. Yeah. They belong solely to the president of the United States, and they will be remembered as uh, the words of of the president of the United States, you know, you're, you're to some extent, uh, just a ghost in, yeah. in the pages of history. And if I, you're, if you're doing your job, right, if you you're doing your job, right. Right. And, uh, I think there's a great element of nobility, 
to being able to give yourself up and give any chance at super fame and super um, legacy uh, for the greater good of, of the nation. And I think these two gentlemen that we'll be speaking with uh, truly embody that selflessness, that commitment to, to public service to give themselves to their president, give themselves to a cause, and you know allow themselves to be um, a vehicle for, for great social uh, change. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so with that, we're going to stop talking. And <laughs> no one wants to hear us anyway. Nobody wants to hear us anyway. We'll you guys, our papers. <laughs> we are fully aware that all of the people listening do not tune in for us. We have much cooler people to talk to. Yeah, so we're going to start uh, and we're going to talk to Mr. Cody Keenan and Mr. Mark Thiessen about their experiences. We have two veteran speechwriters uh, with us, Mr. Cody Keenan and Mr. Um, Welcome so much to the pod. We, uh, we greatly appreciate you guys taking your time to, to talk with us today. Thanks, Thanks for, for having us. us. Yeah. yeah, so um, we'll get right into it. Um, so the first question we have, um, and I feel like a lot of students have, is why speech writing? What brought you guys to this calling? So I started out uh, not as a speech writer. I started, speech writing was sort of part of what I did. Uh, I worked from the Senate Foreign Relations Committee for seven years, and I was the press secretary, communications director. Um, and so I did write speeches as part of my job. Rumsfeld was in, uh, was in uh, private life there. He didn't have a policy staff, so he said, well, I need some help with my, my testimony, so we would help him out writing his testimony. And so when he got nominated to be Secretary of Defense, uh, he had his courtesy call with Senator Helms, and Senator Helms said, well, do you need any help with anything? So he said, well, actually, I need help with my confirmation testimony. So I found myself in the Pentagon uh, writing confirmation testimony, then went back to my office and started back with my regular life. And then a few months later, I got a call saying the secretary wants to see you. And they asked me if I wanted to come over and be a speechwriter, uh, the chief speechwriter for the for the Secretary wow. of Defense. In 2004, they, they somebody liked the speeches of Don Rumsfeld and so asked me to come over to the White House and I ended up at the White House, but I'd never planned to be a speechwriter. It was wow. just sort of, I liked to, I was always a good writer and I was, I enjoyed writing. And so it was always something I brought to the table and it just, you know, ended up that way. Crazy path. Uh, yeah. What about you, Cody? Did you, you go throughout life knowing that, you know, I want to write someday for the President of the United States or is this just something you fell into? <laughs> no, never. I, I started my college career as a pre-med student. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's a little different. Things do change. Chemistry, chemistry changed. Oh, um, but you know, you don't. I, I don't know many successful speechwriters who started out wanting to be a speechwriter. Um, I didn't. I, you know, I came to Washington after college, and you know, you look. My advice to anyone who wants to be a speechwriter uh, is: don't set your sights on the White House. Go find somebody you believe in. Find a cause you believe in. Work for that person or cause, especially on a campaign. You know, because you're never going to get more experience faster than on a political campaign. And I came to work for Ted Kennedy for four years in the Senate. I started as a mailroom intern, graduated to answering phones, graduated to being a, an assistant on a committee staff, and ultimately had the chance to write a few speeches for him. Um, and then after that, you know, a mutual friend, one of my mentors there, plucked me and introduced me to John Favreau, who was my predecessor in, under President Obama. Mm -hmm. And he brought me onto the campaign in June 2007, and I've been writing for him ever since. Wow. So you just sort of. You found the right guy and you sort of rode the, rode the whole way. Well, that's the thing, you know, don't, you know, if I had graduated from college and said, all right, I'm going to be chief speechwriter for the first black president, <laughs> I wouldn't have ended up there. Yeah. <laughs> you pay your dues, you do the grunt work, you learn from people, and ultimately when it's your time, you know, someone will tell you it's your time. Okay. Uh, so something else that we're, we're wondering, because, you know, we have a... Uh, it couldn't be more different uh, with presidents here uh, we have represented in this office. So 
I guess what we want to ask is, you know, because you had such different presidents who speak and articulate in such different ways, how do you go about getting inside their head? How do you go figuring out, uh, you know, what's their style? What's their structure? You know, how do you craft that for them or let them craft it for you? You have to spend a lot of time with the person, you know, no matter who you're speechwriting for, whether it's a president or a CEO or whoever. I mean, you have to have access. You have to spend time understanding that person, what makes them tick, um, watching them, studying them, reading what they read. It takes a lot of work, like anything else, you know, years of practice and study. And I don't think I've fully had the president's voice down, you know, maybe until I've been working for him for three, four years already. Wow. It takes that long. I agree with all that. I mean, when I went to the Pentagon with Secretary Rumsfeld and he asked me to come be his, be the chief speech writer, he said, what do you need to do this job well? And I said, I need to have access to you. And not just in speech meetings, but in meetings where you're making decisions about policy. Uh, meetings when you're planning, you know, whatever it is you're planning in the cave. Once the war started, it was more planning too. Um, and so he gave me that. And so I was able to, uh, because your job is two, th two things as speechwriters. One, you have to capture the person's voice. And not necessarily, if you want, if, if you want to help somebody be a good speaker, you want them to be, you want those speeches to be genuine. And so you actually have to know their voice when they're not speaking in public and capture that in order to, to deliver that uh, authentically in a speech. You don't want their speech voice, you want their authentic voice. Um, and so you have to be around them when they're not speaking in public and when they're not talking about speaking in public in order to get that. And the second thing you need to do is you need to, you, you're the channel of their agenda, right? You're the keeper of, of, of uh, you know, not ideological purity really, but they're, they're per, they're, they're what they really care about. Because what you'll find is, whether it's in the Pentagon, whether it's in the White House, uh, there's something called the staffing process, uh, where you know, a speech gets written, you know, Cody and I would write a, uh, write a speech for our bosses. Uh, we'd work with, with the speechwriters. The president would have told us what he wants to say. And then it goes out into the staffing process. And all the different offices in the White House come in and they, cut, and they tear it apart and they say, take this out. And one day they always say, there's always inevitably the comment, the president would never say this. And, <laughs> Is that the Trump card? And we were just in the Oval Office with him and he said it. <laughs> you know? So, so they, what they mean is we don't want the president to say this. Uh -huh. We want the president to say that. And so you need to... Um, you need to be the key to you know the president's authenticity to make sure that the speeches reflect what he wants his presidency to be, not necessarily what other people want his presidency to be. Sure. And just to follow up on that, both of you talked a lot about access, so getting face time with the president. In a typical week, let's say you're working on a speech or two, how much, you know, what is the balance of your time uh, in terms of working in? I know we saw on a CNN documentary, uh, your awesome office down in the basement and how decked out it was. Um, so, but what was the balance of time spent, you know, writing that office and, you know, in the Oval or face-to-face -face with the, uh, the guy himself and actually working on a speech? Well, the great part about the job is there is no typical week. <laughs> I mean, there, there, could be, there could be a full week where I'd never see him, and that was fine. Mm -hmm. And then there'd be weeks with bigger speeches where I'd see him a couple hours a day, every day, um, nights, weekends, basically whatever he wanted. Yeah, we had a, uh, a regular meeting every Thursday at 10 a.m., roughly, when the president was a speech meeting, was on the calendar regularly, which would be the three top speechwriters, the communications director, or if there was some national security stuff, maybe the national security advisor, where we would talk about whatever speech he was about to give that we had been working on, and also what was up for the next two weeks, and we would sort of strive. We, if he had an idea for what he wanted a speech to be, uh, then he would tell us and give us guidance if... Uh, if there, was a if there was a speech coming up that he had just heard about and we had done some thinking about what he might want to do, we'd suggest our ideas and he'd tell us whether they were good or not. Um, and so we had that as a regular uh, event. And then, you know, when you're working on a speech, it was all the time. 
Uh, you know, the, the, the most frightening thing, everyone thinks it's kind of cool, but the most frightening thing for a speechwriter is when the caller ID says POTUS. Because <laughs> that could be good news or it could be, uh, it could be bad news. Um, right. And so you're, you know, so you're, you're doing that. And then, you know, there's, again, there's also the adjudication of these speeches. So I'll, I'll share a quick story. So when, there was one time where I was working on a national security speech that actually had been classified. Um, and people didn't know he was giving it. Um, and until like the day before the speech, or 24 hours before the speech, it was declassified and we put it into the staffing process. And everybody freaked out because they didn't know the speech was on this topic. Sure. And you know, so all the people who normally would be placated during a several week process of staffing were you know, all of a sudden hearing it for the first time. So we had a speech meeting that he's giving this the next day. We have a speech meeting in the Oval Office at 10 a.m. And instead of just the three speechwriters and the National Security Advisor and Communication Director, like 20 people showed up, I mean, from all the different offices. And they're all staying around and telling, tearing apart the speech, saying, this is wrong. This is, we've got, we got a new wrong theme, and this is the wrong message, and it's just an absolute disaster. And he's giving this the next morning. And so he, the president says, whistles, stop. Okay, this is a disaster, this meeting. I want everybody to go back to their offices, send the speechwriters what your thoughts are, what your fixes are, and let's have a meeting at 2 p.m. and the speechwriters will have a new draft. And so we go back to our offices and we're like, what, are we, what the hell are we gonna do? We've got like four hours to rewrite the speech uh, with, and, and take in all this input. And then all of a sudden the caller ID says POTUS. <laughs> and I'm thinking, oh my God, I'm gonna get fired. Not fired, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna get raked over the coals. And it's actually his assistant says, he, the president wants to see you. So we come back to the Oval Office and we walk in sort of sheepishly. He's like, all right, lads, ready for the real speech meeting? <laughs> and he's like, the speech is great. It's exactly what we talked about. Don't worry about them. Ignore wow. their advice. Um, I'll give you my edits. And we gave him some edits. And like everybody was mystified when the 2 o'clock meeting never happened. So, you know, presidents tend to, tend to get there because they know what they want to say. Right. Uh, they need help. Uh, they, in, in crafting it, they're open to ideas. But, they're, but you know, they're, they're there because they have an agenda. They have a vision. And uh, they don't need a lot of help necessarily getting that vision through. Yeah. Any similar experiences, Cody, with uh, you know, any pushback from the people around the president versus you know, the president who wants you know, his message to ring clearly and, and directly? Oh, God, there always is. <laughs> you know, especially on something like this, the, you know, the joint session of President Trump will give tomorrow night's city and the address. Everyone thinks their policy is the most important one, and it has to be in there. And you feel for them, because you know, it's what they work on, but you just can't put everything in every speech. You know, not if you want to have a coherent message. So, you know, especially the last day when you're trying to protect it, someone will come in and say, well, this has to be in there. So I'd start saying, well, you go tell them. <laughs> you know, if you really think it's that important, go tell them. And, and most of the time they say, nah, I'm not going to. Well, not that important. <laughs> no, forget about that. The best was always when the president would say, we're locked, we're done here. Yeah. Usually the day before. Was the golden uh, words for a speech Yeah, right? and you could email everyone and say, the president says we're locked. No, nothing, next but, time. nothing but factual edits at this point. Wow. For Bush, yeah. it was put it in the big print. When, he was right, when, it, when we went to the big print, you knew you were, you were in the free and clear and the game was over, absolutely. So um, let's talk about some recent news. You guys brought up Trump, so. Um, <laughs> Perfect segue here. Right? Um, Why'd so you do that? <laughs> we could have gone, gone this whole podcast talking about your two presidents. We really but, uh, tried. But um, still can if you want to. Yeah. <laughs> um, so recently, President Trump has gone out and said he's not going to attend uh, the White House Correspondents' Dinner. Um, and that's generally a well-watched speech by the president. It's, um, you know, a time where the president can be personable. And President Trump has announced he's not going to go. Um, my first question is, when you guys are crafting uh, White House correspondence during speeches, uh, what are you guys trying to accomplish? And then do you think Trump is missing out on an opportunity here? 
we didn't actually craft the White House correspondence. The one speech is that a gridiron that, that they, we used Landon Parkin, who was a who was a, uh, a very famous conservative comedy writer, and he would do most of the president's humor uh, speeches. So we didn't do those internally. I don't know if you guys did them in house. We did. We did them all in house, and it was probably the most time consuming speech, <laughs> other than the State of the Union address, and that we started a month out. Uh, but you know, we, we were working on them all day long. We'd start a month out, email, um, you know, close group of about maybe 10 friends and advisors say, here's a list of topics that are, you know, funny, topical, interesting, let's, let's get to work. And we'd ultimately come up with a list of about 200 jokes. You know, in the meantime, wow. we're still writing two, three speeches a day. But we try to whittle them down to the 20 best. And you have to have a thick skin because, you know, I probably average maybe one and two jokes a year. Wow. And you have to have a thick skin. I mean, you have to have thick skin when people say, this isn't funny, boo, you know, that. <laughs> We'd reach out to a couple comedy writers, too, who would, you know, I'll keep them anonymous, but who would, who would submit a couple jokes, and some were good, some were bad. Um, but it was fun. It was just, it was a huge time suck when there are a lot of other things going on. But sure. we always ended up enjoying it. Just uh, to ask the second question, um, do you guys think uh, President Trump is missing out on an opportunity, or do you think that this might be a better move for him? It's a much better move for him. I mean, <laughs> that, 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 that room would have been toxic, for one thing. And two, the, I mean, the, over the years, the White House Correspondents' Dinner has, like, I mean, it, initially it was it was funny, and the, you know, the journalists would come, and everyone had laughed together, and now it's become this just, you know, this, and, you know, it, it probably even more so for you than it would have been for Trump, because Democrats tend to be more popular among the celebrity, <laughs> the sub, the, uh, the the paparazzi watch classes uh, than Republicans are. Uh, so you know, it, it it became this big sideshow um, and kind of an embarrassment in a lot of ways. So I I don't think he's harming himself by not going. He's not the first president who didn't go. We always spent the first maybe third to a quarter of a correspondence dinner speech being self-deprecating, you know, <laughs> making fun of ourselves, um, and you know then we make fun of the rest of Washington. Yeah, I think it's it's a night where I, I don't I won't miss the dinner, but I think it's a night where it's okay to poke fun of yourself. Everybody in Washington needs to come down a peg or two, um, and I think if if President Trump had the capability to do that, I think it might win over a few more fans. That's a great insight. I don't yeah. think that's a reason to go to the dinner. <laughs> it's certainly a tactical yeah. you know tactical maneuver there. Uh, so another question we want to ask, and this is for both of you, um, but what speech stands out as the one your president just? Horror part the most. Not a, like a, not a single word uh, was left untouched. And how did that feel? Just to see the red ink on the paper, and just you knew in that moment there's gonna be a long night trying to put this thing back together. I have, I have two quick answers to that. They might not be the only ones, but a quick memory. The first I didn't have anything to do with it was the, the Nobel Prize speech, mm. um, and it was the on a flight over he basically tore it up. And Ben Rhodes and John Favreau and the president were rewriting it together on an overnight flight to Norway. Wow. Um, so I didn't even know what the final product was until they landed. The second was the Charleston eulogy a couple of years back. Um, you know, we'd spent a lot of time talking about what would go in it. And, you know, I pulled a couple of nighters writing a draft that I knew wasn't quite there. There are just, as a speechwriter, some places you can't quite reach. And in the span of five hours, he crossed out the final two pages of the speech, handwritten on yellow legal paper, called me back into the White House at 10.30 at night and gave them to me to type up. And I was like, what the hell, man? <laughs> but uh, you feel bad about that, but at the same time, you feel pretty good in, in that the president cares enough to take the time to get it right. You know, And I, I actually remember apologizing to him that night because you want to get it there. You know, the, One of the goals of the speechwriter is to basically write what the president would if he had the time, because he just doesn't. Mm -hmm. um, 
And he said, stop right there. You know, number one, we're collaborators. And if you look and see what I wrote, it's based off some of your stuff. Number two, I've been wrestling with these issues, you know, in race for 54 years. When you've been thinking about this stuff for 54 years, you'll know what you want to say too. I, had, I can't remember what the speech was, but I, you know, President Bush was a very tough editor. Bill McGurn, who was my predecessor as chief speech editor, had been an editor at National Review, and he said, I've been edited by Bill Buckley and George W. Bush, and George W. Bush is the tougher editor. Wow. <laughs> and I remember uh, going into a, uh, a meeting in the Oval Office with, I can't remember what the speech was. You sort of block things out as you go. <laughs> but uh, he said, we sat down, and he was always, he, most of the time he was cheerful about it. He was, uh, he, would, he was kind of humorous about it, but he said, well, lads, he always called us lads, so uh, lads, uh, page one is terrible, but that oh. is nothing compared to the disaster that is page two. <laughs> and so, you just wow. knew right there. Yeah, it was like, and so we knew we were in for a long night with wow. the, me with sandwiches from the White House mess working on, working on that speech. Uh, but we would get it there. Usually with with the president, actually, he was a, he was a very. It's actually an insight into his presidency. He was a very he was a stickler for logic. So he he said whenever you have a new speechwriter, and I had that experience of being the new speechwriter, he would say he would tell us about how he had taken a uh, a class at Yale with Professor Roland G. Osterweiss on the history of American rhetoric, and Professor Osterweiss taught him that a good speech was introduction, three points, peroration, and conclusion. And that that's how he wanted his speeches structured. And that if you make point A and then you go to point B, you don't go back to point A. And that in the, he wanted a logical structure. And that it's smart from a speechwriting standpoint because what happens is normally you've got about three or four minutes in a speech where people are wrapped in attention and paying attention to you. And then all of a sudden, like, did I, what time did I get to these kids again? And, yeah. you know, <laughs> and so anything you can do to, like, not to dissuade them from disappearing, from, from, moving on in that direction is helpful. And so President Bush, and I mean, he would even to the point where he would tear apart a paragraph because the logical flow of the paragraph didn't make sense. So this, this third sentence should actually be the second sentence and the first sentence should be the third sentence. And he would tear it apart that way. So he's a very, very tough editor. And you guys have both had a hand, if not led, on a very large State of the Union addresses. Um, what is that process like? How do you guys go about crafting, drafting, and editing those speeches? Um, and how does the president go about practicing them? It's ugly, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's the one thing I'm not gonna miss, you know. Um, it's ugly. Wow, that's that bad. I'll be I'll be asleep tonight by eleven o'clock, which is great the night before City Union Dresses. So, <laughs> uh, we would generally start talking about it in probably right around Thanksgiving. Um, I would spend the first few weeks of December, you know, doing research, reading, pulling policy materials together, looking through what all the cabinet agencies sent over. Um, and I would spend, and that's, that's the other thing about the State of the Union address, it becomes this laundry list of every single priority, and, but priority is an abused word because you'll have 200 priorities from each agency. Sure. <laughs> Everybody thinks their idea is the most important. Um, and it's your job to bust those down to the most important couple dozen, you know, which mm -hmm. is still too many. Uh, and every year we said, this is the year that we're gonna do a half hour State of the Union address. Right. <laughs> never never happened. <laughs> so I usually do the writing over Christmas, so I'm looking forward to actually having a quiet Christmas for the first time this year and give it to the president as soon as he gets back from his Christmas vacation. And, you know, the first day you'll meet with him, uh, he would go over his kind of general feedback, you know, whether he thinks it's in good shape, whether it's not quite right. And, you know, a day or two later, he'll start diving in and doing line edits of his own writing. And probably by the time, you know, as we're talking today, it's the day before Trump's speech, we'd be pretty much done at this point. You know, we'd have finished up over the weekend and now you're just... You know, dealing with everyone's last-minute edits, please, cuts is the, 
big, the biggest thing in the neighborhood speech is cuts. I'd always be trying to cut about a thousand words. And I'd bring in the rest of the speech writing team to help me do that. Um, then hopefully by now it's locked. The president will go through one more time and then he would practice for the first time on game day, usually around 5 p.m. Do one run through on a teleprompter, then go have dinner and relax for a couple hours. And on the way to the Capitol, he would always listen to Eminem's Lose Yourself. Really? Go, yeah. <laughs> Interesting song choice. <laughs> yeah, that was his, that was his pregame ritual. Um, <laughs> I love it. Only once last year were we doing last minute edits. He came up with a new idea in the limo. So I was backstage plugging him in probably about three minutes before he hit the rostrum. Wow. Yeah. That must have been like the most stressful few minutes. Of totally. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're just, you know, you, you've all these great people who are standing there working there. The military runs the teleprompter operations. And I was like, I was like, just for once, you got to move and let me do this real quick. Get it ready to go. Because you want him to hit there at 9.01 and 30 seconds and be ready to rock. Yeah. Yeah, for, I mean, our experience, my experience was similar. I mean, the, the problem with the State of the Union is, is that it's both the most watched speech that a president gives, you know, even more than an inaugural address, even more than an address to the nation, uh, and a televised address to the nation. But it's also, if it, it's also the hardest to write because of what Cody said, is that it's, a, it's a, by its nature a laundry list of, of, of policies. Um, because that's what its purpose is, is to go to Congress and tell them what you want them to do and what you want to work on. And it's become over time more of a method talking not just to Congress, but to the American people. Um, but initially, it, from, its, from its inception, was a message to Congress about what the legislative priorities are of the president. And so you have to take the entire president's agenda and put an overarching theme to it so that it's not just a laundry list of policies that this is this is what we're in and it can't be the same theme as last year it's got to be it's got to be related but it's a different some sort of a theme and so every every white house i've i went through five years of these meetings this year we're going to do a thematic state of the union address <laughs> and no one has ever you probably guys came the closest uh, to it and that, that but 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 at the very end of the last i think the last day of the union but nobody yeah. nobody ever does it because you've got to have the policies uh, you've got to have the uh, the details in there, and so it's a very very difficult thing to do to get to have a theme uh, on it, but uh, but but to also get all the the agenda through. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we would start as, as as Cody did early. We'd go through the, the process. President Bush would after we after we you know Thanksgiving you you do it you do an outline you discuss with him you, you agree on the theme, and then once he's locked in on the theme, then everything else throws through that, and no one can add in things that don't. I mean, it's kind of a, it's a forcing mechanism to keep some stuff out because it doesn't fit with the theme. It doesn't fit with the theme. And President Bush hated it. He always used to like to like to find what he called cram ins, the things that people somebody jammed right. in there. And he would he Just would he, right he would love to say that was Rove or that was uh, I know that I know who that was. That was you know it was Insmeister or somebody like that. <laughs> trying to figure out who would put the force the cram in into the speech. But uh, and so he, what he would do is we got to this point. So we're now the night before the State of the Union addresses we're, as we're discussing it. Uh, for about a week beforehand, we would start, move from editing in the Oval Office to move editing in the Family Theater, where they would set up a podium, teleprompters, um, and start uh, and start discussing and, and start delivering it. And those started out as editing sessions. And as he got more comfortable with it, as he worked it, because sometimes what you when what looks good on paper, as Cody will, will, will attest, uh, doesn't always work in the spoken word. The spoken word is different than the written word. And so things that he can't say well, or the phrase didn't work, was too complicated, that sentence was too long. You make those fixes, and over time he would begin to own it and, and like that. And then by this time, he was done with edits. He didn't, over time it would be less editing, and he'd say, he'd tell us this is no longer an editing session, this is a practice session. Uh, so he critiqued my delivery, but we're not adding new things in, and everyone would still try, uh, and he'd get really annoyed. Um, but, but actually by this time, 
you know, we were we were still at the White House in case there were any edits, but we were usually, you know, sitting back and you know having a, having a, having a sandwich in the in our office and you know hoping that the phone didn't ring. Fingers crossed, right? Yeah. We just got a couple more things for you guys. Thank you so much for, for walking sure. us through some Absolutely. of these amazing experiences. Um, so this is just a quick test. Uh, let's say the news just broke. We've eradicated the common cold. Give us a 30-second speech in your president's voice. What would they say right there in that moment? <laughs> it, it never quite works quite like that. You know, the, the only things that came close were mass shootings. You know, but it, to, to answer your question, if that happened, we were going to go out and give a... I don't think you need to do a breaking news speech on that because everybody would be so happy. Yeah. Okay. What we would do is, you know, kind of, we actually probably would go to the CDC yeah. uh, and do something with a bunch of doctors and scientists there and pay tribute to, you know, a, a century of American innovation that led to this moment. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The closest thing to, to some, turning something for in our administration was when we got somebody. So, like, when we, we killed Zawahiri uh, and Zawar Sarkawi, rather, in Iraq. Like mm -hmm. We got the word on that uh, late at night and got called back to the White House, had to write a speech that the president would deliver the first thing the next morning announcing that we had taken out a major terrorist leader. And that's something when you have to really turn it around really quickly. Um, so th those were gratifying moments when, when things had to go very, very fast. Um, but uh, common cold, I think we'd we'd have a little bit more notice. Give it a little more time, I'm sure. Plan it out the way Cody. I like the way Cody suggested. Several years of yeah. testing. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds about right. Yeah. Great. And just one last thing, just because you know we are college students and uh, we're appealing to a Georgetown audience. Here, yeah, sure. So love to hear you know closing words of advice. What would you do tomorrow here on a college campus that would be a great first step to to get yourself in the door? Look, like I, like I said before, you know, I wouldn't make it your mission to be a speechwriter. I'd make it your mission to find out what you care about and go to work in that, you know, and everything will fall together. You know, if, if you're dead set on being a speechwriter, <laughs> what I would do if I went back to college now, knowing that I was going to be a speechwriter, sure. I would take more courses in history, philosophy, psychology, things like that. Um, because those are all critical to speechwriting, too, you know. You don't have to be an expert in any particular issue. It helps, but I, I can't think of a topic I haven't written a speech on in the last eight years. You know, and as a speechwriter, you're kind of a an expert in everything, but a master of nothing. And that's because we have experts to lean on. You know, we had policy people, we had a Pentagon to go to, we had a State Department, um, we had a CDC. So you don't have to be an expert in any particular field, but you do have to have kind of a broad depth of knowledge of history, economics, philosophy. Um, and, you know, one thing you just can't teach is empathy, which is critical to speech writing. It's the ability to get in your audience's shoes, even if you haven't lived their experiences. And that involves reading widely. I mean, that involves reading everything you possibly can, even from people you couldn't possibly stand. Um, those, those are the things I tell you to do right now. Yeah. Um, my advice would be write for your college newspaper. Um, get involved. I was When I was in... Uh, in uh, I was at Vassar College, and I was the editor of the conservative student newspaper on campus, um, and uh, that was an, an incredible experience, and also opened a lot of doors for me because when I was, it allowed me to get involved in the broader conservative movement. So I, when I was a college uh, senior, between my uh, between my junior and senior year, I was working with a group that supported college newspapers, and I got an internship in the Reagan White House in the last wow. year of the Reagan White House. So actually, I'm a Reagan alumni in addition to a Bush <laughs> alumni, and I got a taste of what it was like to be in the White House, and didn't necessarily set my goal on being a speechwriter one day, but just enjoyed it and thought maybe it would be fun to be back here one day in a different capacity. Wow. So that was always in the back of my mind, but I never set a goal to be a speechwriter. 
And I think Cody's absolutely right about that. Um, the way to be a successful speechwriter and one day is one, hone your talent, which is writing, write a lot. I mean, whether, you know, be, be the guy who's willing to write the constituent letter to the congressional office, be the guy who's willing to write the press release, you know, announcing, you know, something small or that, and just sure. constantly honing your, honing your skill. Um, and, and second of all, just find, uh, find a cause you believe in, a politician you believe in, an organization you believe in, and go help them. You'll ultimately, the opportunities will find you because you'll go out there and you'll work for people who are good people who share your goals. Um, and will they'll give you work hard and you stick around. Don't also don't jump from job to job. Stick around someplace for a little while. And if you if you do that, then those opportunities will come to you. Yeah. Washington's a very difficult place to find a job. I mean, I you know I remember well being an unemployed college student, college graduate, moving here, and you know I'd wager ninety percent of all jobs are unposted. You know, they all go by referrals and people asking who's good. Um, and it's an awful catch-22 when you're just starting out because they want to know, you know, what's your experience. They're not going to hire you without Pretty it. Now, yeah. but, how are, but how are you going to get experience if they're not going to give you a shot? Yeah. So going back to something Mark said, you know, write like crazy, build up some kind of portfolio. You can't just go in asking for a speechwriting job without anything to show for it, mm -hmm. you know? The most important thing is to hone your craft, to be a good writer. If you're a good writer, just like if you're a good athlete, they're going to find you. If you're a good writer, they're going to find you, and it's going to be apparent. And it doesn't matter what your background is, you know, what where you were. Good writing stands out. It's good to hear there's hope yeah. for all of us. Then. Right. <laughs> uh, Cody Keenan and Mark Thiessen, thank you guys so much for joining us on our second episode of Fly on the Wall. I really appreciate you guys taking the time. It's a pleasure to be with you. Good luck, guys. All right. Appreciate it. All right. Well, thanks again for listening, yeah, and uh, we'll see you next week uh, for episode three of Fly on the Wall.